Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, today's a good day. Uh, My name is Greg Clark. I'm the lead pastor here. Excited to be with you here today. Um, if you've been praying for, uh, for us over the last couple of weeks, we thank you for that. There's been a couple of funerals. Um, we've hosted two funerals here. Uh, there was another one down in Lacombe that I was a part of in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we had 331 people here on Friday for Diane Martin's funeral. And uh, if you know who Diane Martin is, uh, she was a pillar in this community. And quite a few people came out. This, this, almost this whole section was full of nurses from the hospital. It's just amazing. It's amazing to be able to host them here. Uh, and uh, you can be continuing to pray uh, for the seeds that were planted there to take root as the gospel was clearly presented and as we were able to honor Diane's memory as well. So just continue to pray for that. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, we, uh, we're continuing to see God move in our community. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So keep on praying for that. And you're a part of that too. So as God uses you uh, to move in our community, I just pray that you would continue to be able to reach out uh, to, uh, as best you can. The middle lights here are off. I don't know what happened there, but it looks so dark right here. There's, like a just, there's nobody sitting there <laughs> right in the middle. But let's get, we'll get those lights up and going just so you guys can uh, look at that. Let there be light. The Lord is good. It's awesome. All right. Well, in 1981, a movie came out called Chariots of Fire. How many people were not born in 1981? Oh my goodness, isn't that awesome? <laughs> uh, that's great. I was four years old, so uh, that's great. Um, but it's, it was the movie Chariots of Fire. It told the real-life story of Eric Lydell who ran in the 1924 Olympics. How many people were not born in 1924? Okay, that's, that's better. That's good. A missionary kid, Eric was a Christian who loved Jesus very much. As Eric pursued uh, his running career in the movie, his sister questions whether or not running is really worthy of Eric's life in light of the kingdom of God. Aren't there better things to be involved in, she said. To which Eric replied, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric trained for the 100-meter race at the 1924 Olympics, only to find out that that race was scheduled for Sunday morning. And according to Eric's convictions, he chose not to race on the Lord's day. All this training, all this time, he had focused all of his energies on this one race, And it all fell flat because he chose not to run on that Sunday morning. Now, in the movie, you see that uh, another racer uh, was racing two races. He was racing the 400-meter hurdle and the 400-meter race, and he had already won the 400-meter hurdle. So he said, Eric, why don't you take my spot in the 400-meter race? And so it was going to be held later that Thursday, and so Eric took that spot. He was still going to get a chance to race Eric's choice to not race on the Lord's Day made headlines around the world. Nobody could understand why in the world would a person do something like this. Some people were incensed, uh, while others were intrigued by Eric's decision to honor God in this way. Eric actually got to preach at Paris' Church of Scotland 
on the day he was meant to race. And he spoke, about, he spoke from Isaiah chapter 40, which is the runner's passage. Here's what Isaiah 40 says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Eric went on to run the 400-meter race in the Olympics that Thursday. He was not at all expected to win. I mean, he had trained for the 100-meter race. This was four times longer than he had trained for. And yet, at the end of the day, at the end of the race, Eric Lydell was the gold medal winner of that 400-meter race in that Olympics. Eric ran for two reasons. For the first was to glorify God. Eric went on to be a missionary in China. He knew God had made him for a purpose, and that was to tell the world the good news about Jesus Christ. And surprisingly, God also made him fast, and he used that speed, that running, to show the world through Eric's refusal to run on a Sunday and subsequent gold medal win in the 400-meter race. Through the world reports of these things, God used Eric's running on a much grander scale than Eric could have ever hoped for. Even now... A hundred years later, we're still telling the God-honoring story of Eric Lydell. Isn't that amazing? The second reason Eric ran was because he felt God's pleasure when he ran. Many people now point to this being the reason that Eric ran so well. Many people run to try to prove themselves. Eric didn't have to prove anything. He knew that he was loved by his Heavenly Father. He did not try to earn God's love or anyone else's love. He just ran because he felt God's pleasure when he ran. How do you feel when you hear that, that Eric felt God's pleasure when he ran? Do you know that God is pleased by some of the things that you do? There is likely something that you do that God's pleasure is all over. We're in our Let's Dance series where we're engaging with the Trinity Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at Jesus, the Son, and today we begin a three-week section speaking of the Father. Sometimes when people think of God, the Father, they think of a terse and stern God, if not an outright angry God. And this view of God has some merit to it. There's some legitimacy in it. Scripture speaks of the wrath of God, and it's not a happy picture God's wrath is fearsome. Jeremiah the prophet said this. He said, See, the tempest of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. That's a scary idea. That's a scary thought. God's wrath is to be feared for sure. God has wrath. He has wrath. But what we sometimes fail to realize is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that God is wrath. The Bible does, however, say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. So how can we reconcile God having wrath with his character of love? I was talking with a friend this week, and we were discussing how a loving God could allow, could allow his children to go through unloving things like pain in the world, sorrow, death, and of course the ultimate. How could a loving God allow people to go to hell? One of my friend's friends had a hard time with this last concept. How could a loving God allow people to go to hell? 
He said that after having his own children, he could not imagine ever sending his children to hell. So he could not imagine that God would ever allow his children to go to hell. And that makes sense on the surface. It makes sense on the surface. If God really loved us as much as this friend of a friend loved his children, then our loving God could certainly not allow anyone to go to hell. God's love seems inconsistent with sending anybody to hell. Now, I love my kids, and I would do anything to protect them. Oh, you, you just try to mess with my kids, and you will see a different kind of Pastor Greg pop out, I tell you what. Like, it'll be something else. I would do anything to protect them, almost anything. There are probably a bunch of things I wouldn't do, but there's one thing for sure that I wouldn't do. There's one thing for sure that I wouldn't do. I wouldn't take away their self-will. I wouldn't take away their self-will. Mark Twain famously said that the way to raise teenagers was this. He said, when a boy turns 13, put him in a barrel and feed him through a knot hole. When he turns 16, plug up the hole. That's good, right? Now, it might seem like a good idea in theory, but any father who would actually do that, we would call that person a bad father. Like, they'd go to jail for sure, right? You can't actually do that. Like, I haven't done that yet to you guys yet, right? Okay? No, that's for sure. That's not happened. Even if the father was wanting to keep his children safe, that would be a terrible thing to do, a terrible thing to do. Our good and loving Heavenly Father loves us so much that He has given us free will to choose Him or to not choose Him. When God was making a covenant with Israel, this is what He said to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God said this, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. He goes on, but if, you, if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God sets before us life and death and calls us to choose life. Now, in this passage, God does not say, if you choose the false gods, I will destroy you. What he says is that if you choose the false gods, you're going to be destroyed. Can you imagine this? God had talked, spoken to the Israelites, and he said, I'm going to take you into the promised land, the place that I have set apart for you, the promised land, this wonderful place that flows with milk and honey. It's a blessed place. I'm taking you into this amazing place I've set aside for you. But there are hard things in this place. There are giants in this land. There are people there who will kill you just because you look different than them. If you go with me, I will take you in there. I'll bless you. I'll make you thrive. I will give you victory. You will be able to go into this land and possess it as the possession that I have given to you. But 
If you choose to go into this land and you follow false gods and you leave me and you do this on your own, you will be destroyed. Not because God is going to go and smash you down, but because if you go there outside of God, you're going to be destroyed because you're not that big of a deal. You're going to fight against these giants. You're going to go against these big cities. You're going to go into this land where people want to kill you just for the way that you look, and they're going to be able to kill you because there is nothing standing in their way. But if you go into this land under my protection, you will thrive. But if you don't, there's only death and destruction for you. God's not saying, I'm going to destroy you. He's saying, choose to follow me so you can have life. So you can have life, so you can thrive. God offers us life. We often forget that the God we serve is the God who said in Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's the same God that when we read in the Psalms, we read this of our our God. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. So slow to anger and so patient with us that when we get to the New Testament and Jesus says, I'm going to return soon, we're all looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, right? He's going to come back again. He was here. He was born. He lived life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he said, I'm going to come back. We're looking forward to the coming back part. That's going to be amazing, right? But he is so slow. He's so slow. And here's why. Here's what Peter says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you know that Jesus is waiting? He is longing for everybody to be saved. And we know that's not going to happen. But he longs for it, that none would perish. When we look at Jesus, we see the picture of the Father. We know Hebrews says that Jesus is is the exact representation of the Father. So when we see Jesus, we get a glimpse of the Father. And look here, Jesus is is looking out over Jerusalem. He's looking out over Jerusalem, and he knows that the people in Jerusalem have rejected him, and they're actively trying to kill him. They are looking for ways they can take him and crucify him. And he looks out over Jerusalem, and he is so much more compassionate than I am. But here's what Jesus says. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Isn't that amazing? The people who are actively trying to destroy him, he says, oh, I've longed to gather you under my wings as a, as a chick gathers her, her, as a hen gathers her chicks. This is the heart of the Father, not to destroy Not to destroy, but to gather and give life. God's wrath is best understood as his love in action, opposing that which harms his children. He's like a mama bear, ready to destroy anything that would dare come in between him and his children. God hates sin. He abhors it. 
He is full of wrath against sin because sin brings destruction to his children and to his creation. He hates sin. Sin is our disobedience to God. It's our willful running away from God's hopes and dreams and desires for us. God desires to give us life and we run headlong towards death. It's like if my kid grew up and left the house and left all of my teaching behind and ran into the world only to be slowly destroyed by it, I would feel sick over it. I would hate the destruction my child is facing at the hands of sin, but I wouldn't chain up my child in the basement to save them from it. I wouldn't take away their self-will. I would still allow them to choose life or death, but I would hate it if they chose death. I would hate it if they chose death. God hates sin because it destroys. We play around with sin, don't we? We, we, we meddle with it. We twirl it around as if it's some kind of a, a plaything, like it's not that, that big of a deal. But sin is destructive. It destroys. But even in the middle of all of that destruction, God made a way. Not outside of the destruction. God made a way in the middle of the destruction. He made a way. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's what sin is. When we run off to our own way, when we, when we come under the power of sin, under the power of destruction, that's when we're running away from God. But look at the rest of this verse. Because we've all gone our own way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. Now, if you know Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 was written before Jesus came, but it speaks of the suffering servant, and it prophesies, Isaiah is prophesying of the coming of Jesus. All of the wrongdoing is going to be placed on Jesus. The verse in Isaiah is a prophecy written, written about the coming of the Savior. And then we look in Romans to the fulfillment of that prophecy. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the middle of the devastation and the destruction and the brokenness, Jesus came in the middle of that while we were still sinners and died for us. The sin that we walked in, the, the things that we should have been paying the penalty for, Jesus paid the penalty for. That's how much the Father loves us. He placed our brokenness, our destruction, our wrongdoing, our sin on Jesus, even while we were dead set against him, even while we were still slaves to sin. It's like my child going out into the world, leaving my teachings and running headlong into death and destruction, and getting caught up and taken to court and sentenced to execution for his crimes. And on the day of, their ex of his execution, of, of my child's execution, I show up and stand in for them and take the death blow myself. Now imagine that scene taking place billions of times over for the whole world. All of the death and destruction, all the, the notices of execution for every single one of us, all of that placed onto Jesus. All of it placed onto Jesus at the cross. That's how much our Heavenly Father loves us. That while we were dead set against Him, while we weren't even looking for a Savior, a Savior showed up and made a way for us to receive the love of the Father. See, God's wrath is not meant for us. It's not meant for us. 
Woe to anyone who would willingly stand in the path of God's wrath. God's wrath is against sin and brokenness and death. It's not against us. It's not meant for us. God calls us to choose life, to choose Jesus, to choose the love of the Father. God's wrath is not meant for us. His love is meant for us. In fact, we have a God We have a God who takes great delight in us. Remember, John tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. Well, just before that passage, just one chapter earlier in 1 John 3, 1, this is what what the the writer of 1 John says. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Don't you love that word lavished? You should use it in your regular wording every day. Like when you, when you talk to somebody, you should be like, you know, I didn't just make you lunch, but I lavished lunch upon you. You know, I didn't just bring you like the, 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 a water, I lavished water upon you. Like you just use that word all the time. It's a fantastic word. How amazing it is that God has, has lavished his love upon us. In fact, look back here in the Old Testament in the book of prophet Zephaniah. This is such a good passage. You should know Zephaniah 3.17. You should have it written somewhere in your house. Okay, look at this verse. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Now that word rejoice, you've probably heard me speak about it before, but that word rejoice is not a little word. It's even greater than the word lavish. It's a Hebrew word that means swirling around, or swinging around in a dance with extreme emotion. It's not just like rejoice. It is this crazy picture of rejoice and dancing and swinging in a, with extreme emotion. It's the picture of a God who is taking great delight in you by dancing and singing over you exuberantly. Now, I wore what I think is probably one of my, my flashiest shirts. I don't know. You probably can't see it very well on the camera. But can you see my, I wore my flashy socks as well. Whew. Okay. They're my M&M yellow socks I got for Christmas. So this is, this is an, this, I just want you to understand how exuberant God's love is for you. When he rejoices, he is swinging around and dancing over you, excited about you, takes great delight in you. That's the picture of the God that we have. Our Father in heaven takes great delight in you. How do you feel when you hear that? How do you feel when you hear that? If you've thought of your heavenly father as a rather terse or stern or even a bit of an angry God, well, you're not alone. While the Old Testament is certainly overloaded with loving and kind and compassionate language towards God or about God, the Pharisees and teachers of the law during Jesus' time misunderstood the scriptures and also saw God as terse and stern and a bit angry. But that is not how Jesus saw God. Jesus related to God at a more intimate level, at a deeper level, and we see that in the way that Jesus referred to God, not just as God, but as his Father. Jesus even taught his disciples and us the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. The concept of God as Father is so normal to us that we miss how incredibly strange this would have come across to the people of Jesus' time. 
They had no concept of this. It's interesting because all through Scripture, if we really read Scripture, it, if we look at the Old Testament, we'll see that God has always been a loving, compassionate Father. He called Israel his children. He provided for his, his, his people like a father provides for his family. In Psalm 68, he talks about being a father to the fatherless and a defender and a provider for the widow. God has always postured himself towards his people as a loving father. But over time, and certainly by the time of Jesus, God was seen as unapproachable, terse, and stern, and even a little bit angry. And that's where Jesus showed up. You can imagine how strange it would have been when Jesus described God as our loving Heavenly Father when they thought that God was terse and stern and a little bit angry. And even stranger still would have been the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a father who had two sons. And oftentimes you hear this parable focus on the younger son, but there is more to this parable. Yes, there's also the story of the older son. There's this younger son who, who takes his, his share of the father's wealth and runs off to squander it. And there's the older son who stayed home but views the father as terse and stern and doesn't really experience the father's loving character. These two foci of the parable are good and wonderful and fine. And if you heard a sermon before talking about the younger son or the older son, that's fine. But you've got to understand, this parable is actually about the father. It's actually about the father. As Jesus is telling the story, the people in the crowd recognize themselves in the story. The younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners who have run away from God, while the older son represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who have stayed close to God, but who really don't understand his character. The most outrageous part of this story, though, is the way that Jesus portrays the Father, because the Father represents God. I want you to look at this part of the story and try to put yourselves into the mindset of the crowd. This crowd has only been taught about a God who is terse and stern and a little bit angry. Now listen to this part of the story. Listen. In that mindset, listen. The younger son has gone off. He's squandered his inheritance and is now coming back with his tail tucked between his legs, hoping that he can work at home as a slave. I imagine he's walking ever so slowly, dreading the reunion he imagines he will have with his father, who he views as terse and stern and a little bit angry. But look at what happens as the son begins his return home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to the son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This was not how a Middle Eastern father behaved. You were not supposed to run. In fact, what he should have done is he should have turned his back on this son and he should have allowed the townspeople to stone him. But the father was watching for the son. He saw him while he was still a long ways off, which means he was watching for him. And he ran to him. He tucked up his, his robe, tucked it up, and he ran to see his son. It was not the way a Middle Eastern father was supposed to act. It was certainly not the way God was supposed to act. Everyone listening to this parable would have been shocked, shocked. Some were likely outraged at this depiction of God. But Jesus didn't care because this is who your heavenly father is. He's delighted in you. 
He's delighted in you. He's delighted in you. Your Heavenly Father loves you. And your Heavenly Father delights in you coming home. He delights in you coming home. Are you far off from God today? Have you gone your own way? Turn back to God. Pick up your head and turn towards God and you will see him running to you, picking you up and wrapping his arms around you. You are not meant for God's wrath. So choose Jesus. Choose life. Give your life to Jesus. Take him as your savior. Turn away from going your own way and head towards the Father and he will scoop you up in his arms. He delights in you. Would you just stand with me? I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up here and get prepared to sing our closing hymn together. If you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, if you haven't turned towards your heavenly Father, do so now. Do so now. I want you guys just to close your eyes for a moment, bow your heads. If you've never turned back to the Father and you want to turn back to God now, you can pray a little prayer in your head, something kind of like this. Jesus, I need you. Forgive me for going my own way. I give you my life. Come into my life now and bring me back to the Father. Thank you, Father, for loving me. Amen. So Jesus, we are so thankful that you came willingly to die on the cross for us. And Father, you sent your Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus. We thank you that you love us, that you take great delight in us, that you have compassion over us, that you desire for us to come home. And God, we pray that today, Lord, that we would see salvations in this space here, people who are watching online. God, we pray that this message will go out from here as well, that you would give us opportunity as we speak to our friends and neighbors to tell them the good news, that you are not an angry God. Certainly you hate sin, but you want us to choose life and experience your love. So God, would you help us? Would you give us the words that need to be spoken to our friends and neighbors that they would know as well that you are a God who is love, who desires for us to choose life? Spirit, would you fill us afresh even right now that we would be able to represent your love well to our communities and the people around us? Now, may you be honored and glorified, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, in us, through us, and for us. We thank you and pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Now, the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.